test for the semester. I had been doing quite a few things the first part of the semester, and it was nice to just get a little bit of a break. I don't know how I really got to this point. Um, I don't know what exactly I was thinking or whatever happened, um, but for some reason, as I was sitting there at home, the thought of playing baseball came to my mind. And not just like playing pickup baseball, but playing baseball for the school, even though it was my senior year. At first, it seemed like a really silly idea, um, but after a few days of thinking about it, I realized, actually, it may not be that bad of a time to do it. Uh, the roles that I had at school were very front-loaded, and I had a lot to do the first semester, but the second semester, it was going to slow down a lot. And also, some of my best friends were student teaching, so I wasn't going to see them much anyways. For those of you who don't know me, I love baseball. I played it throughout high school, and I loved it. I'm a huge Rockies fan, um, which I know I can't say proudly, but I am a huge Rockies fan. Um, but uh, I loved it, and throughout high school, I was at least not terrible. Um, but when I got to college, I gave it a try. I went to a few practices, but I just wasn't sure that it was the right way to go. I really wanted to pursue the community that was there at school, and see what it was like to have good friends who were also following Jesus together. Um, as I went to those first few practices, I realized that, honestly, I wasn't even sure if I would play that much, and um, I knew it was going to take up a lot of my time. Now, it's, the senior, it's my senior year, and I've invested a lot of time into the community. I feel rooted in the community, um, and I had more time. But I still hadn't played baseball in four years, and I had no idea if I would really even be able to play. And also, the season was only a month away, so it, it all just seemed crazy. It didn't seem like it was going to happen. I was well out of practice, and it was, it was just coming up too quickly. Even with that all in mind, I just couldn't get the idea of playing baseball out of my mind. I really wanted to play, but I also kind of figured my chance to play was just too far gone. I'm sure that you've experienced some of these feelings of regret or maybe even hopelessness I was going through, and more than likely on a much larger scale, a dream or a goal for the future that just feels too far gone, or a talent or a skill of the past that you just don't have anymore, or the loss of a relationship that feels too far gone, and maybe it's even the loss of the relationship with God that just feels too far gone. Last week was Easter Sunday, and maybe you had high hopes for what would come of the weekend. You were so excited for the nearness that would come from that weekend. You were so excited to be near to the Lord and just to feel the peace that came with that. But the weekend came, and now it's gone, and it just kind of feels like everything's the same. In a slightly different vein, maybe your hopelessness doesn't come from what God has or hasn't done, but it springs from what you've done. Maybe you feel like you are just too far gone, that you're too unlovable, that all the wrongs you do you've done could never be forgiven, and that you've just run away for too long and too far, and honestly, it just kind of seems like there's no road back. Maybe it isn't necessarily something that you've done wrong, but that the nearness with God you once felt 
is just too far gone. Like, you can remember a time when the fire and zeal you had for the Lord were, were so strong, but that just kind of feels like a distant memory at this point. And you feel like you've tried all you can do to get back to that feeling, but nothing seems to work. Like, it will never be the same as it used to be. Maybe. It just feels like you and God are finished. That's, you're cut off from one another. Today, we're going to look at Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14. Uh, if you haven't done so already, you're welcome to turn there in your Bibles. Um, but the passage that we're going to be looking at is known as the Valley of the Dry Bones. And in it, Israel feels this hopelessness as well, specifically in regards to their relationship with the Lord. To them, it seems like the Lord has given up on them. I don't know, have you felt that way? Have you felt like the Lord has abandoned you? Let's see how the Lord responds to Israel's hopelessness and feelings of abandonment. Just a little bit of background before we get to the passage. Um, Ezekiel prophesies to his own people, the Israelites, who are now about 12 years into exile. So they were in their homeland of Jerusalem, but now it's been 12 years since they've been able to be there. And now they're just spread out. And in the covenant that God made, God made with Abraham in Genesis, he promises three things. He promises seed, that he would continue to make their descendants numerous. He promises blessing, that he would go with them and he would be good to them. And third, he promises land, that they would be given the promised land of Israel. And now, if the promised land of Israel is gone, how are they to go on believing that the rest of it isn't gone as well? Even the covenant itself. Our passage today is outlined like this. The first section is the setting of the vision in verses 1 through 3. The second section is the vision itself in verses 4 through 10. And the last section is the explanation of the vision in verses 11 through 14. First, we're going to look at the setting of the vision. It says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by his spirit and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me all around them. There were a great many of them on the surface of the valley, and they were very dry. Then he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? I replied, Lord God, only you know. So right away we see that Ezekiel is brought to this valley that's just full of bones. And he's led back and forth in it by the Lord. And in verse 2, Ezekiel makes three significant observations about these bones. First observation is, there were a great many of them. So right off the bat, we don't know what happened in this place. But whatever happened, we know that it was a devastating battle um, because there's just so many corpses. And Ezekiel doesn't even know how to count them. He just says that there were a great many of them. Second observation we see is that it was on the surface of the valley. You may ask, why is this important? I mean, come on, Sam, where else are they going to be? That was kind of my thought at first. But honestly, they could be buried. They're just left out in the open. And so you're still saying, okay, that is a distinction, but why is that significant? And I would say, I'm glad you asked. 
in the ancient Near East, there was this custom of just leaving bodies out in the open field to be thrown out, to be devoured by animals. In fact, this, pra this practice was associated with people who had broken an oath. They would not receive a proper burial. Even in the giving of the law in Deuteronomy, we see this practice is noted in the covenant curses section. This is the curses um, that are upon people who break the covenant. In Deuteronomy 28, 25 through 26, it says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will march out against them from one direction, but flee from them in seven directions. You will be an object of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your corpses will be food for all the birds of the sky and the wild animals of the earth with no one to scare them away. So here we see that the image that Ezekiel is seeing is actually a fulfillment of what was prophesied before and what the covenant curses would look like. And this practice was to humiliate people, to make them a horror to the rest of the earth. And we learned that the reason these bones are here is that they've broken an oath or a covenant. And so we see that there wasn't just a great many bones, but they were also unworthy. In a sense, the bones were in the very place they're supposed to be. Third observation we see is that they were very dry. Ezekiel describes the quality of the bones in the same way that he described the quantity of the bones. As there were very many bones, they are also very dry. The dryness of the bones signifies that they've been dead for a long time. It's not like they've just been sitting there for a while and um, there's a chance that they could come back. There's, there's no life left in these bones. It's not just a pull out the defibrillator kind of situation, perform CPR on these bones, and maybe they can come back to life. No, these bones have been dead far too long for that. And so just in this verse, we see that these bones are numerous, unworthy, and out of time. In just a word, these bones are hopeless. And it's all of this that leads to the question that the Lord asks of Ezekiel. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel responds with, Lord God, only you know. Ezekiel responds basically with, I don't know. His answer uh, leaves room to not doubt the power of God. He's still leaving room that God could get this done, but he's also not uh, completely giving up on the fact that this is a very hopeless situation. He's not just ignoring the hopelessness of his fellow Israelites. But also, truthfully, the answer he gives isn't the right answer to this question. The right answer to this question is an emphatic and resounding no. No, these bones can't live. These bones are far too gone. I mean, what power could raise these bones? There's too many of them. And even if there was a power strong enough, who would raise them? They broke an oath of some kind. I mean, they probably don't have someone eagerly waiting for them to come back. In fact, if they do come back, there's probably someone on the other side waiting angrily for them. And let's even pretend that there is a power strong enough and someone or something willing enough, how would they raise them? It's too late for these bones. 
bones just don't come back from this. And so maybe you're listening to the state of these bones and the situation doesn't sound all that familiar to you. Maybe it's your situation. Maybe you think, I'm just lost. No one could redeem this brokenness. I've sinned too much. I've run too far. And even if they could, why would they? I haven't done anything to deserve it. And honestly, I'm scared to come back and face the penalty for all I've done. And even so, it's, it's too late for me. I've gone too long. I've gone after other things for too long. And if I'm being honest, I don't even remember what it's like to not run. There's no hope for me. Or maybe there's someone you care deeply for that this description fits. You've been praying for them and proclaiming the good news to them for what feels like forever. And it just feels like all of it's in vain. It just feels like there's no hope. And so as we come back to the story and we come back to the text, at this point in the story, maybe you're right. I mean, that's what Ezekiel's answer leaves room for. Maybe it is too much. Maybe it is too grievous, and maybe it is too late. But, like Ezekiel's answer also leaves room for, let's hold out hope for just a little while longer that maybe, just maybe, there is still hope for these bones. Lord, you alone know if it's possible. The next section of this, passion, this passage is the vision itself in verses 4 through 10. I've split it into two other sections, um, but the whole vision is in verses 4 through 10. Um, and it's the bulk of this passage. It starts like this in verses 4 through 6. This is the command that the Lord gives to Ezekiel. He says, He said to me, Prophesy concerning these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord God says to these bones. I will cause breath to enter you and you will live. I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you so that you come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so the word of the Lord to Ezekiel here um, is broken into three parts in verses 5 and 6. Right here highlighted, you see what will happen. He mentions it first and after um, uh, the next point. But his point here is that I am going to cause breath to enter them. And they are going to live. And those two points sandwich in the middle how it's going to happen. He says, I will put tendons on you, make flesh grow on you, and cover you with skin. And then he concludes it with why it will happen. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And so we see right here that the Lord's plan here is indeed to restore these bones. He's going to take these lifeless bones and he's going to completely reverse the decompositional process. As these bones deteriora deteriorated over time, their skin fell off and then their flesh and then the bones came apart from one another. He is now going to put them back together in that way and then he's going to breathe life into them. And the role of the breath the spirit in all of this is emphasized here by the way that this is laid out with it, with it surrounding the how of the way it's going to happen. And ultimately, this is all for the glory of the Lord. This isn't because of anything they've done. 
It isn't because they deserve to be regenerated. Instead, it's because that's who the Lord is. The Lord is the one who restores, and he's the one who breathes life into that which was dead. In verses 7 and 8, Ezekiel prophesies to the bones as the Lord told him to. And it goes as he said it would. He says, so I prophesied as I had been commanded. While I was prophesying, prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together bone to bone. As I looked, tendons appeared on them, flesh grew, and skin covered them. But there was no breath. So in that first, th- that first part, we see that the Lord did it just how he said he would. He followed the how. And as it's happening, Ezekiel hears this rattling sound that's like a great earthquake. And for the sake of time, I'm going to keep moving forward, but also uh, keep your eye on the weekly updates because I do have some thoughts on how this rattling sound kind of plays out in all of Ezekiel's story. Um, But just stay posted for that. Um, The steps that Ezekiel laid out, or the steps that the Lord laid out for Ezekiel go as planned, but also Ezekiel's still surprised that there was no breath in them. There's a bit of a pause here as if to wonder if the Lord has actually done all that he can. I mean, he was able to bring everything back together. He was able to reconstruct the body, but the hope of life is gone at this point. I mean, come on. It was a miracle to even get to this point. It was a miracle to get to the point where the bones are together, everything's back together, but come on, the, the hope of life for these bones is, is just too much to ask for. And then the Lord goes on to tell Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath. Verses 9 and 10, it says, He said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says. Breath, come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. The breath entered them, and they came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. And again, we see that the breath is emphasized by this slight pause. The Lord tells Ezekiel to prophesy to the breath because it is needed to animate the bones. Certainly the breath is what's at center stage here. But the question in the minds of the original readers would have been, will the breath actually be powerful enough to break the covenant curses that are upon these slain? The breath comes in its power from the four winds. It enters those who are slain. They stand to their feet and they become a vast army. And just like that, we've gone from this picture in the beginning of a great many bones to a vast army. In the Hebrew, it's that there was a great many bones, and then it's a great many, many army. It's emphasizing that it's even bigger than it was before. And it's not by any strength of their own, but it's by the spirits. And again, it's to be a vast army. This is the final image of the vision that all of this has been leading up to, an image of an army beyond measure at the ready for the Lord. These bones weren't raised to life to go their own way. They were raised to fight together for the Lord. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, I love the way that he depicts his idea of 
the Valley of Dry Bones, there's a scene that resembles the Valley of the Dry Bones. And it's interesting how in Lewis's mind, in his when he comes up with his story, um, he places the imagery of the Valley of the Dry Bones right after the resurrection of Aslan, which is the imagery of the resurrection of Jesus. In Lewis's story, Aslan is raised to life while the White Witch and her army go off to fight against Aslan's surely outnumbered forces. Aslan, after being resurrected, could go straight to the battle. I mean, after all, when he gets to the battle at the end, he basically wins it all anyways, by himself. But it's interesting that he, he doesn't go to the battle right away. He goes straight to the witch's castle, and he sees all the statues of the creatures that the witch has turned into stone. And he goes around, and he breathes on every one of them. He looks at every corner, every inch of the castle, and he makes sure that there's not one left, not even one. And then when everyone has been reanimated, all of the creatures have been reanimated, there is this scene of great rejoicing among all the creatures. And then Aslan claps his paws together, and he says, our day's work is not yet over. And if the witch is to be finally defeated before bedtime, we must find the battle at once. And then one of the creatures, who was stone mere seconds ago, he chimes in and he says, and join in, I hope, sir. To which Aslan replies, of course, of course. See, dry bones aren't raised to life to live as if they haven't been raised. Dry bones are raised to life to be a vast army for the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit. Dry bones are raised to proclaim the message of the hope that is found in the one who has given them hope. The one who gives life to that which was dead. And hope from hopelessness doesn't leave the person where they were before. Hope from hopelessness cannot leave the person where they were before hope by its very nature has to point us to something that is greater hope points us to a life that is greater and in his book a million miles in a thousand years donald miller says this he says to know there is a better story for your life and to choose something other is like choosing to die to know there's a better story for your life and to choose something other is like choosing to die. Brothers and sisters, in me, once you have been raised to life, to go on living like you haven't been raised is like choosing to die. It's like choosing to die. The greatest story to be part of for my life or your life or any of our lives is is to join the vast army of the Lord. There is no greater story. And this is the glorious depiction of what the church is called to be. Brothers and sisters, what, what would it be like if we actually believed that the same power that raised the vast army lived inside of us? It does. It does. Moving on to the last section, the explanation of the vision. This one is also split into a few different parts. Um, verse 11 is the reason 
for the, for the vision. Um, it's also Israel's complaint. The vision has now concluded. We ended with the picture of the vast army. And now the Lord finally gives the reason for showing Ezekiel what for for showing Ezekiel all of this. Why has he shown him this? What's the point of this? And we find out that the reason for this has actually been that there's this complaint that's been circulating amongst the Israelites as they're in exile. And we see that this complaint is threefold. Our bones are dried up. Same metaphor that's used in um, the vision. Second, our hope has perished, the interpretation of that metaphor. And then the most piercing, the third one, we are cut off. And ultimately, this is the purpose of the vision and the question that looms between the Lord and his people. Are we indeed cut off? They have broken the covenant. They have forsaken their God and they have gone to other idols. And now they've been exiled from their land. Are they beyond hope? And is, is this actually the Lord's way of showing them that, yeah, actually you are cut off? Is there a limit to how many times we can break the covenant with the Lord? Is there a sin that is too grievous for the Lord to forgive? Is there an expiration date on grace? And in the next verse, just as the Israelites had a threefold complaint against the Lord, the Lord issues a threefold promise to the Israelites. He says, therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Lord God says. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them, my people, and lead you into the land of Israel. And he has, like I said, three points. He says, I am going to open your graves. I'm going to bring you up from them. And I'm going to lead you into the land of Israel. The Lord emphatically declares to his people that they are not cut off from him. In fact, he's going to restore them to their homeland, the land of the promise. And with it, he is declaring that the covenant is still in effect as well. And ultimately, why will he do all of this? That's in verses That's in verses 13 and 14. He says, You will know that I am the Lord, my people, when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. This is the declaration of the Lord. The answer here, the why here, isn't this. The final two verses aren't. For they have lived in a way that is pleasing to me. The final two verses aren't, for they deserve this. No, friends, it's actually not even close to that. He will do this because then they will know that he is the Lord. These bones, these people aren't redeemed because they are worthy of redemption. They are redeemed because the Lord was glorious and upheld his covenant with his people even when they didn't deserve it. And he longs to invite his children in. And dry bones... People are raised today, are redeemed today, 
not because they are worthy, but because the Lord is glorious and because he upholds his covenant with his people, even when they don't deserve it, and he longs to invite his children in. And now, all of this is a story for Israel. Um, This is a resurrection and a restoration for them, but as Christians living in this time and on this side of the cross, it would be a disservice to ignore how Jesus fits into all of this. Levi McAllister, also known as Levi the poet, put it like this. He says, At the cross of Christ I know that the bonds of sin are broken, that they bar the gates of hell for me, and that heaven's doors are open as wide as my sweet Savior's arms were stretched out when he died, and that love has defeated death with a life for me to hope in. At the cross of Christ, I know that despair has been removed, that it drowns beneath the crushing weight of hope as found in you. That love has defeated death with a life for me to hope in. The message of hope for the dry bones of Ezekiel's time does indeed extend to us today, and more than that, it extends to us in the person and hope of Jesus Christ. Through his conquering of death, we are able to experience life We are brought out of our hopelessness into life. And ultimately, as I reflect on my own story, I decided to give baseball a try my senior year. I kind of figured, what do I have to lose? And honestly, it didn't go as planned. I did get to play in a few games, but I ended up being the bullpen catcher for the team that season. It's nice to be a part of the team, but it wasn't the role I was hoping for. But more than that, I had the privilege of having some gospel-centered conversations with a number of the guys on the team. I remember, I can look back on this one time vividly, I remember we had a doubleheader on Good Friday that year, and I went to the coach and I said, what do you think of the idea of us taking communion together as a team? And he said, that sounds like a great idea, and so, I I was able to lead the team in a time of devotion, uh, in a time of communion, just in the dugout between games. And I don't say that to um, think of myself highly. In fact, I kind of say it as the opposite, because my hope for that season was to play baseball. That's the only hope I had for that season. It was just to play baseball. That's all I wanted. But the Lord had a greater hope for me that season a hope of getting to participate in the advancement of the kingdom of God, the hope of reviving my baseball career was a good hope. Don't get me wrong. It was a good hope. It's good to have those kind of hopes. But even still, those kind of hopes pale in comparison to the hope that is found in Jesus Christ, the hope that is found at the foot of of the cross, the hope of bringing back to life that which was once dead, the hope of freedom. And so here's our big idea for the day. Put your hope in the Lord because you are not cut off from him. Put your hope in the Lord for you are not cut off from him. And I want to take these last few moments to speak specifically to three groups who might be here today. First, the person who is deciding if they want to take on this adventure of following Jesus together or not. If that's you, we would love to talk with you after service about what that looks like.
please come find one of us. Real quickly, he offers you hope from death, from addiction, uh, hope from death, death for eternity and death in this life, hope from addiction, from shame, from sin that has caused death. He He offers the hope of eternal life. And whatever you're going through, there's nothing too difficult for him to overcome. Second, to the Christian who feels like their faith has grown stale. Brother or sister, don't be ashamed of your dry season. I feel like it's all too easy for us to get into a dry season and think that we have to go at it on our own. If you're experiencing a dry season, don't hide it. As we saw in this passage, we are a vast army called to fight together for the Lord. Let us come alongside one another to pray for you, to encourage you, to call on the living breath of God who restores to reignite your faith. And lastly, to the faithful witness of the gospel who is struggling to believe that God can overcome the unbelief in their loved one's heart. To the one who has proclaimed the good news continually and prayed and prayed and prayed for what seems like forever. It can be so taxing and it can be so much of a weary to your soul. But take heart. Don't believe the lie that begins to creep in that it's ever too much or too evil or too late for the Lord to work. It is never too much or too evil or too late for the Lord to work. The Lord can, has, and does redeem and restore that which seems hopeless. The message of the gospel is one of redemption and restoration without measure. No matter how much sin you have committed, no matter how unworthy you are, no matter how long you have run away, Jesus will always accept you back. And when he accepts you back and breathes his life into you, the only logical response, the only possible act of worship that we have is to live our lives as a vast army of his for his glory. Let's pray. King Jesus, you are our living hope. Um, I ask that you would um, fill us with that hope. Whether we feel it or not, I ask that you would continue to remind us of the hope that you offer us at the foot of the cross. the life that we have to look for, even in the face of death. In Jesus' name, amen. Not too long ago, our own Ginny Hurst was in her own valley of dry bones. She had experienced loss, loss. She was empty. Yet our God did just what he said he would do in this passage. He breathed new life into her, and she responded by joining his army in earnest as a faithful member of our very active women's leadership team. We've invited her to come up here and share some pieces of her story with you as living proof of what God loves to do. Good morning, everyone.